Hi, this is Annika Fain with Northwest Fish Passage. This is episode two of my podcast. Today I'm here with Kit Crump. He works at Snohomish County and I'm really excited that he's here joining me today. Hi, Kit. Hey, Annika, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing good, thank you so much. So just a, a little bit about how Kit and I met back in July, 2015 part of a floodplains by design events. Kit, um, can you start by just telling the audience a little bit about how you first got started in habitat restoration? Sure, sure. I basically started in fish habitat restoration in 2005 in California with NOAA. And so I was doing habitat restoration then. Previous to that, I was more working with reptiles and amphibians, and before that, birds. So that was really my first journey into the fish world, and I've kind of been there ever since. And so I did that for five years, and then kind of moved into, moved to Washington for, you know, basically non-career reasons, just a partner, we were moving up, and this was a good area to move to for a medical field as well as my field, because this is kind of salmon central for the Pacific mm -hmm. coast of the U.S. and North America. So it was a good place to move to. And then I ended up, NOAA had a partnership with TNC, so I was in contact with them. And that kind of led to getting, you know, work with them. And that was a term one-year position. And then they and other partners of theirs helped me secure the consulting job to work with the Stolgamish tribe in the county on some salmon planning work related to Chinook recovery. And then through a variety of happenstance and design, I ended up becoming the lead entity coordinator of the Stolgamish lead entity, which is run by the county and the tribe. And I inherited the consulting work that I produced in a way that I never knew would happen. So, and I've been doing that ever since, so. And that's funding and planning around habitat restoration for Chinook salmon recovery in the school farms. And then what about uh, Long Live the Kings? You, you did some work. Yeah, that was interesting. They ended up being the fiscal agent because there wasn't a, an appropriate mechanism for me to receive the partnerships, Puget Sound partnerships money directly as a single kind of independent consultant. So I... We worked out an arrangement with Long Live the Kings where they would be the fiscal agent to receive the state money and then they paid me. So that was really their involvement in that sort of monitoring and adaptive management framework I worked on for the Stillwamish Lead Andy. So going back to when you were younger and deciding on a career, and what was it that drew you to this studies on um, fish and other things? Wow, okay. The kind of the quick and dirty answer is I, it, it was a non-linear kind of random walk through a variety of careers. When I was young, I wanted to be a veterinarian. So working in animals is no surprise at all, but that was cats and dogs. It evolved into possibly being a zoo veterinarian. And then that idea evolved more into wildlife work with birds of prey because during high school I had a bird of prey rehab center at our property and that was my gig to keep me out of trouble in high school. And 
So I went into basically bird of prey, endangered species work. And so endangered species have been a big theme in my mm -hmm. career all along. And we're talking now about 35 years of this. <laughs> so I basically ended up working on peregrine falcons and the DDT eggshell thinning issues. And so worked in a lab, hatching young birds, helping to reintroduce them into the wild. So, but we're really just fixing the pollution problems environmentally and then we were working directly with the birds there was no habitat restoration at that point mm -hmm. and so when I went to college I was sure that was UC Santa Cruz by the time I got to San Jose State I was looking into bird projects raptor projects and they were falling short of money and other reasons and a professor introduced me to pond turtles and I ended up doing my master's thesis on pond turtles in a stream that had endangered coho in it and because of that, I got amphibian and reptile experience because there were red-legged frogs there. I had a job with red-legged frogs a long ways from Santa Rosa, where I lived after I graduated from San Jose State. And I ran to some NOAA biologists who worked in the same town I lived in. I said, do you guys ever have wildlife biologists as a fishery agent? said, yeah, a couple of us are wildlife biologists. I went, okay, there's hope for me. And so then I pursued working at NOAA and had learned a lot about coho salmon from the professor who was a fisheries professor and basically from then it was fish fish and fish habitat because that was the NOAA restoration center like the one here in seattle that was exclusively about fish habitat restoration mm -hmm. which was perfect since i wasn't a straight fisheries biologist so that yeah thanks for sharing i love to hear about how people get to where they are and what motivates them so what is one of your favorite habitat restoration projects? I know you've worked on a lot and... Yeah, I do have one favorite and it's for a variety of reasons. The real simple way to put it, it was on a creek in Southern California in the Santa Monica Mountains, Topanga Creek, not too far from Malibu and, you know, near Hollywood, but far enough away that you have no idea you're in Hollywood unless you see an actor or actress driving down the road. <laughs> It was a complete floodplain restoration. They removed old highway concrete slabs that had to be treated chemically, treated on site to make them safe for even hazardous waste disposal. And once they pulled the berm out, they restored this Steelhead Creek's floodplain in its entirety with Highway 1 running right over the end, but it had a big enough clear span bridge that once you got all of those other impediments out of the way, it was on state parks land. It had 38 derelict structures, cabins that were used by squatters that had to be removed. And all of this was run by a conservation district powerhouse person who had like three staff members. And wow. I was their funding and support gateway. And they took this project on and made it happen. It really, to me, one of the, for the scale of the group and the size of the impact on the environment, I've never seen anything quite like that. So. That is far and away one of my, and I have another one, but it's kind of a similar version of the same story. So it's really that kind of what mm -hmm. a small group of highly dedicated, motivated powerhouse folks can do. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. So was that when you were at uh, NOAA? That was when I was at NOAA. So that's around 2007, 2008, in the middle of my tenure there. And have you been down there uh, recently? I have not. No, I would definitely like to see it again. And I have some friends and relatives down in 
the you know Southern California area, so it'd be fun to go by. I did have one of our county biologists who was going down there. I said, "Stop here, walk over here, and check it out for me if you would." And he did. He said it was pretty impressive looking. So I mean, it's impressive in a way because it's not you're removing everything. So what's left is a natural floodplain, and unless you know the backstory, the before is so radically different. You have to use your imagination. Go. There really were structures where there's water now. There really was all this concrete asphalt, you know, with cad high cadmium levels in it that need to be treated, and all that's gone. Wow, so. that's great. I'll definitely check it out when I'm down there next. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's a pretty easy one to find. It's just yeah, when Highway One crosses Topanga Creek, you're basically in it, and it's that whole canyon you're looking at. Do you know if there have done ongoing monitoring uh, of that site? You know, in a lot of times yeah. in projects there, I'm very curious to hear about ongoing. Um, ongoing monitoring is a struggle for most projects. Mm -hmm. you're, you're absolutely right. I can see when you're asking that question, you get that it's not done as often or for as long as you'd like it to be. Well, that dedicated group is still there and they were coordinating with NOAA to do fisheries monitoring. And I knew they were doing some of the habitat monitoring. That's probably the part I don't know. Mm -hmm. And you know, now we're talking, it's been a while. So how long you know, have they done it? It's a rather easy site to access and get some basic photographs of just whether they're doing anything more robust. You know, I doubt they're in the streams doing pebble counts at this late a date, but it really is a missed opportunity when you can't do that. I have another project mm -hmm. that is also kind of a favorite because now I have a UW professor who was down in a project I worked at down in California and he set up a long-term research project with grad students down there to monitor projects and now he's working with us to monitor our projects up here with new grad students so that's exciting because that's an opportunity for young folks to get into this career and it's an opportunity yeah. for have somebody with outside funding and outside kind of longevity just take on the monitoring because most mm -hmm. proponents when the project's done are exhausted and they're ready right. to move and they or they really have to move on to the next project and so it's hard to you know in an outfit bigger like the county we have dedicated monitoring staff that's all they do is monitor projects and rivers and so whether it's project effectiveness or kind of status and trends monitoring of the whole river and the habitat that's naturally there versus impaired, looking for future opportunities. Yeah, you do need kind of a dedicated army of people that really all they do is monitor. Mm -hmm. So back up here in the Northwest, what is, I know you have a lot of projects that you're involved in uh, getting funding for and implementation. Can you tell me about a couple that you're currently working on different phases and oh sure yeah yeah we have a very exciting opportunity on the north fork stillaguamish that the stillaguamish tribe is working on they recently acquired 250 acres of floodplain habitat on the lower north fork which is just kind of upstream of arlington washington so in the trafton area which was an old kind of township along the north fork so you identify the area as Trafton, but there's no town there currently. But there is a county park there adjacent to this project. So in addition to the 250 acres, there's possibility to do restoration on the county park. So this is in the early design phase, 
And so this is a really exciting opportunity to basically see, you know, to do river restoration at a scale that will start to influence processes so that habitats can sustain themselves. Mm -hmm. When you do it at a small scale, you get very small results and you're basically still putting a new feature in the old river and the, the old river that's constrained by the highway, by the railroad berm there on the Whitehorse Trail. So you don't get a lot of movement and habitat features beyond what you just put right in. So it's exciting when you get to work at a larger scale. And another one's one you're very familiar with that we're starting up at the county, Chatham Acres. That's in the upper North Fork of the watershed. This is more like just downstream of Darrington and Squire Creek in that kind of area. And so that's a side channel and log jam project on some property that we purchased with a FEMA grant. So it was a buyout of an old community that was trying to get off the floodplain. They received federal funding to get off the floodplain and then we took over ownership of the property that the FEMA funds had purchased about 10 years ago. And now we are able to get in there and we've been planting and doing some other monitoring in there. Now we're able to look into that. So you know about that because that's an exciting opportunity for a lot of us to look into what we can do there. So, so with there's those, lots more, but those are the, yeah, those yeah. are good uh, snapshots. So for those two, what do you see as the biggest challenges for uh, for implementation, for design and implementation? Yeah, the biggest challenges of the Trafton project is that if you had the whole river valley to work in, it would literally be unchallenging because you remove the impediments and the river does exactly whatever it can, it's going to do and that's what you want. The big thing at that site is to protect the railroad berm that the Whitehorse Trail is on. And the Whitehorse Trail is a county parks managed trail Mm -hmm. There's a rails to trails program that county parks throughout the state can use. They manage the property, but they basically there don't own the railroad berm. The railroad owns the berm and they reserve the right to re-engage it as a railroad if there's some emergency need for that. But we don't believe that's going to happen, but they're also not going to pull the railroad berm out of there. So protecting that trail and that railroad berm is key. And there's a bridge at the downstream end of the county park. And so those bridge pillars are vulnerable to any changes in the river. So, and this will be a theme for the next project, the Chat Chatham Acres project is avulsions. River mm -hmm. movement in a way that, you know, if you have a side channel, does your side channel become the new river? And then the river's right up against the Whitehorse Trail at an angle that's really likely to cause increased erosion and damage. So. Those are probably the biggest uncertainties for that project. Again, working at a 250 acre scale, most of the property is fine. It's supposed to get water. There's no neighbors that will be impacted. So I would say it's not one of the more risky projects because of that. The Chatham Acres project, because of the proximity of neighbors is not a super risky project, but we are in a highly avulsion prone area in the upper North Fork. There's a lot, it's a lot steeper, so there's a lot more river energy. So it's much more likely to do things in a way that aren't predictable and do them with a lot of force. So if there were neighboring areas, and there are some, that th those have to be taken into account because you are talking about a, a very dynamic area compared to the lower North Fork, or the lower portion of any river. So what about uh, community support for these? Uh, 
Well, that's a good question because that's a key thing depending on where the projects are and who's doing them and all of that. There's a county park nearby, so there's a lot of interest in access to the lower floodplain. So there were talks of putting campsites there long ago, but putting them in the floodplain doesn't make sense. But then, you know, will people enjoy the different view and the different wildlife opportunities because it'll bring wildlife closer to the wildlife, you know, aquatic wildlife and, you know, mergansers and things that people can see and maybe even salmon, you know, on, on their runs. But it will limit, it will limit some of the access points that people currently have. So that's a big thing the tribe will have to negotiate with county parks and the stakeholders that care about that park. What access are they losing? So that's a big one. Obviously, the affected stakeholders, any landowner where there's erosion potential, you know, the parks will represent the railroad's interest in that. So there will be that discussion as well. But since parks are the immediate neighbor, they're going to be involved anyway on both the White Horse Trail and the Trafton Trailhead Park. So that's a pretty decent, you know, kind of enough stakeholders and enough interest that you will, but you know, there's some that are even more, even bigger, but Chatham mm -hmm. Acres, I would say less so because again, there are not as many affected parties nearby. So there'll be less of that, but there are property owners that will be interested. Oh, and I failed to mention too, on Trafton, there's a private timber company that will be very interested in what happens at Trafton and they're on the list of people that consult. So yeah, mm -hmm. it's really rare to have any project where there's nobody you have to talk to. There's, it's just how big is the, the list? <laughs> Some of them, it gets pretty extensive, like the estuary projects, like the one near Stanwood in the Stillaguamish, Lekwe Island took a, a massive stakeholder outreach, like multiple meetings with specific groups. Here's the recreation outreach plan and action meetings. Here's the ones for birders. Here's the ones for the city, you know. So yeah, they get they scale differently depending on how big your action is and how crowded the neighborhood is. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit more about what type of salmon you think that uh, you will be helping and other uh, animals um, in sure. both of these situations? Yeah, exactly. No, we definitely, the target of our recovery plan is Chinook, but we know the site is used, the river is used by all the species of salmon, which are you know, pink salmon, coho salmon, as well as trout, steelhead trout, Dolly Varden bull trout, and which Dolly Varden are a version of bull trout, and chum salmon. And so we know we're going to have some use of all those. And this site at Chatham is currently used by those. Mm -hmm. The thing with the Trafton site is you're likely to get more species and more numbers because it's lower in the river. Every fish in every tributary in the middle and upper and middle parts of the North Fork have to pass by Trafton on their way to the river, so, to the ocean, sorry. So they're basically, you know, it's going to get more use, but yeah, we are getting some use at Chatham Acres already. By adding wood structures, we're gonna increase the survival of the fish that are already there. And so, yeah, some restoration projects are more like enhancing the conditions that are there and making them work better. And some are like Trafton, you're, there's no access now, it's an empty field. So when you pull the levees, it'll be inundated for the first time in a hundred plus years. 
Oh, that's very exciting. So I, I know from working on some of these projects, they take a, a long time. What do you see the timeline for the Trafton project? Yeah, that's going to be several years. That's a big, big project. And it's going to require a lot of money. And sometimes cobbling together the funding is what slows the project down. If there are any permit issues, again, are there any issues with the Whitehorse Trail and the park that would require a permit review to be longer than it normally would? and getting stakeholders on board. So all those things can delay potentially the project and just the complexity of it, it's big enough that it invites a lot of, you know, multiple scenarios. You wouldn't just say, here's our preferred option. We're going to do this. It's like, well, get the stakeholders here. Here are five options. What, which one are you terrified of? Oh, you you hate this option. Okay. We don't think it was the, will give us what we want anyway. We can throw that one out. And then slowly but surely they hone in on, a set of good options and finally a single preferred option and that's what gets built or designed mm -hmm. and then built and so depending on how much back and forth there is with the community that can take years or happen in a you know five to ten years or have so Traft and I predict well we're talking really the end you know several years down the road probably five to six I think is realistic some of our estuary projects on average have been taking ten or ten plus years because mm -hmm. they're just bigger and surrounded by more stakeholders. Chatham Acres, I'm hoping, is, you know, a few years. It's just mm -hmm. smaller scale and less, less chances for and less stakeholder concerns. So, but we'll see. There's always setbacks and things you don't count on. And some of it is as simple as someone does geotech work on a project and figures out you can't use on-site material. You have to haul in material. Mm -hmm. new material and haul off old material that can drastically change a project like Trafton's costs. If you're not doing a lot of that, you know, if you're using just local material because you're like, we can, then, you know, that's not as big of an issue. If you don't need to build a levee, Trafton has kind of a natural floodplain terrace. So I don't mm -hmm. think they need to build a levee that some of those concerns won't be there. And so that will help with costs so. and costs go into your question of delays. Yeah. Yeah. So do you have any culvert projects that you're involved in right now? Not directly right now. We have a couple on the books. There was a wash dot culvert on 532 that's been worked on. And above there, there's a county culvert on Secret Creek, which is a has some good cold water inputs into it. So it's a, a pipe culvert like a lot of the ones you've looked at and worked mm -hmm. on and so then it, it, it i safe to say it's a jump barrier and a velocity barrier a jump barrier because it's perched up as you know and if there isn't a big pool for them to dive down and build up the speed to jump up they can't do it and really then you're talking about only certain adults that could make that kind of jump and then once they enter the pipe if it's a velocity barrier and they have like a burst speed of six feet per second for like five seconds, you know, the, a culvert that's longer than, you know, 30, 50 feet, they're going to get exhausted and then wash back down out of the culvert. So mm -hmm. for a variety of reasons, yeah, these need to be larger and perched in a way that are basically to prevent that kind of adult sort of fish passage impediment. And so if it's, and this, so this secret Creek one is a total fish passage barrier. And so when ones are, 
total barriers, they get pretty high priority, especially if there's a lot of good habitat up above. Mm -hmm. And there is here, one of the challenges is there's also some private culverts immediately upstream and getting a different entity than the county to work on those can be a challenge. But we have partnered with Sound Salmon Solutions, Wild Fish Conservancy, mm -hmm. and the conservation districts, because they tend to work on private lands. And that's been done in the Snohomish and on Wolf Creek for sure. They have got a partnership going to try and, because it's not too useful to get a fish to the next step and then never get that next step removed. But that's one of the real yeah. challenges with fish passage is you may right. have 11, 11 barriers owned by four different entities. And if no, you know, you don't even work on the watershed if the bottom one is off the table. But if the bottom one, like the washdog culvert in this case, is on the table and getting done, mm -hmm. then you move to the next one and finally reach a point where you're like, well, I'm not sure how we can get. And that's challenging because funders really want to fund the completion of getting the fish where we want them to go. You know, they were, it's a risk for them to give you money to fix culvert three when there's no really good plan to address the ones up above. Right. So what is the the status of the county secret creek um well right now it's in the kind of scoping phase so they're basically looking for money for design since we own it already it's not an acquisition it's really just the challenge with secret creek is that we have hundreds of culverts like secret creek all over the snowmish and the skogamish watershed so how to prioritize them so we're actually mm -hmm. working on it a revisit of our priority basins in how to prioritize those. Now there is a- Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, there that was actually another question I wanted to ask about prioritization and what are some of the things that, I know it's a big challenge on trying to figure out which ones to do first. So can sure. you, let's Yeah, there are a variety of parameters. Some of the basic ones are, you know, well, one is it you have to analyze the culvert itself and that's probably the part that, you, you and a lot of, and your engineer is very familiar with in terms of you know how big is it a total barrier and what's the velocity and the jump height and all that and there's a typical protocol for doing that but you've done that in all your culverts and you have lots of total and mm -hmm. partial barriers that filter out a lot of fish from getting beyond now what so then you're looking more at some prioritizations look at culverts lower in the watershed in tributaries because more fish will get to those potentially another one is cold water inputs naturally produced cold water inputs from infiltration galleries where water moves through the soil and gets cooled so arlington heights is a massive infiltration gallery that sends a lot of cold water into both the north and south fork so and its tributaries so some of those tributaries are really really good habitat if fish can get to them because they're cold fish salmon need are cold water fish they're not like bass so Basically, the, so that's one way you can prioritize, you know, county-owned culverts near those kinds of sources. The big one, obviously, in classic fish being, well, how many miles of stream habitat are you mm -hmm. opening up if we take this one culvert out? And if it's like a terminal culvert and, yeah, there's a one up above, then that's fine. And then is there a natural limit to anadromy, like a waterfall or something? You're like, can I get the fish to the waterfall at least? Yeah, and um, I'm familiar with uh, WashDOT having a, a list in different cities and counties. So I'm wondering, for your case, you're working with Snohomish County and Stillaguamish primarily. So do you? How do you um, have a prioritization? 
do you have something for countywide or usually by basin because okay. the funding is separated by basin the recovery each basin Snohomish and Stilly have independent recovery plans even though they're part of a larger plan for the sound so it's really like how does this culvert in Woods Creek stack up to other ones in the Snohomish how mm -hmm. do Jim Creek culverts stack up to Canyon Creek culverts and so in the Stilbamish is, is a better comparison it's yeah we do run into trouble if you run into two equally important culverts in the in the two different basins well then what I mean usually right. we have dedicated staff in both places so it's not usually a capacity issue well we try to do both mm -hmm. so, but yeah there, there's really the problem is there's so many and we only know so much about them and then there's a lot of unknowns that we've been talking about so yeah it makes prioritization very very difficult for sure mm -hmm. what are you most hopeful about in upcoming years in terms of habitat restoration I think I'm most hopeful in that if we reach the kind of momentum we need that we can actually start to see more, more of the rivers functioning as they're supposed to because there's a huge lag time between habitat restoration improvements and a real fish response. And we're not doing enough restoration at this point where we could expect a fish response. And that would take a lot to, to get there. But it's exciting to see big projects working at larger scales like we now have in Trafton and then an estuary projects I didn't talk about that are now combined to form kind of a 1200 acre block of habitat mm -hmm. that that's going to get us in places that we have not been able to get to previously. So my hope is the new opportunities and then just new people coming online with new ideas is always exciting because yeah, so I, I see a lot of potential there too. So that leads me to my next question. I'm wondering what advice you have for young professionals that are just getting started in their career? Yeah, that's a very good question. I have two really big kind of points that I've been using for a while and they, they seem to be coming more true over time instead of less. And one is communication skills. I think in the old way of doing business, a lot of people felt like they could sit in a isolated office and design things like culvert replacements and mm -hmm. and they really didn't have to explain their methodology to anybody like stakeholders or and now we realize just how critical it is to explain what is going on and i think a lot of it communication is around climate change like this is the river as it is today we're building culverts bigger than they need to be today because we know tomorrow's river will be bigger have bigger flows in the winter and stuff. So I think just having people good at public speaking, I'd say probably is the, and writing are the big points. Mm -hmm. Your ability to speak in front of a group and be understandable and know your audience and then to be able to write effectively because yeah, those are the hallmarks that I think have changed in conservation over the last 20, 30 years. And then second, we really ties back to the other thing I said is like, my story is not of a random walk to get where I got is not unique to me. I think it's like we all know where we kind of want to go. You have to let life and circumstances 
create roads to get there that you never saw there because life happens. You get married, you move to a different area and you meet different people and all of a sudden, or you're not going to school now for health reasons and then you go later. Is it, you'll get where you wanna go, but it will not be by any path that makes sense to you when you first enter <laughs> your career. That's true. Just <laughs> let it go, let it happen. Let it happen. Yeah, my, my major professor who, from California said, yeah, success by pure chance. <laughs> like, <laughs> other than I was committed and I had determination. He said, you need that. Yeah. But then you just have to sit back and let, let the, the car and the roads appear and disappear and change because you don't control any of that. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me today and for talking about all those projects and getting your perspective. Uh, I really appreciate it. Well, sure. My pleasure. Thank you very much. I would like to end by expressing my deepest respect and gratitude to the many indigenous peoples and tribal nations in the Salish Sea region for their enduring care and protection of our shared lands and waterways. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please write a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access this podcast. Have a great day. <laughs>